Hi, and welcome to Housewives of True Crime. Welcome. Welcome. I am Tabitha. Give me Dateline, White Wine, and I'll pick up your kids in the carpool line. The next day, right? Yeah, the next day. Okay. And I am Gretchen. I like White Wine, True Crime, and In Bed by Nine because I have a lot of stuff to do in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) We are Housewives of True Crime. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Hey guys, welcome to Housewives of True Crime bonus episode. This one is just me, Tabitha, today without Gretchy. Boo hoo. Gretchy's actually, well, she was on vacation and then she got a gnarly cold. So she's not here today, but I thought this episode was long overdue. So it's just me. Don't worry. She's back for our next bonus episode and our regular episodes. So first off this week, it's a real sad week for the world as Kobe Bryant and his daughter and their friends have perished real close to my home, you guys. I was actually walking into Starbucks when Kobe's helicopter flew over and I looked up because it was real loud. I made note of the helicopter, the color of it, blue and white, it's flying real low. I actually thought it was going to be a military helicopter because of the sound. So when I looked up, I'm like, oh, that's weird. It's just a passenger helicopter. I went straight to my daughter's basketball game after my Starbucks run. And right after I heard that the helicopter went down really feet from where we were. And it was Kobe Bryant. My heart sank, you guys, because I knew that that was the helicopter I saw. And then after I saw it on TV, I mean, it was confirmed. So, I mean, I think I saw it 30 seconds before it crashed. And Gretchen and I have been talking a lot about it. And so we're going to talk more on our bonus episode next week. We're getting together in a couple days. So you'll hear more about what we think and why we think the world is so crushed from the sky. And his legend will live on forever. But he was a dad and he was a husband and he was a hard worker. He was all the things that we appreciate in a person. So anyways, that's that for this week. And we pray for all the families involved and all the people that are going to be mourning him and his family and all the families that lost loved ones. This is a unique episode because it's an interview I did back in November with a podcast host named Chris Lambert from the podcast, Your Own Backyard. I found Chris's podcast and was pretty interested in it because our very first episode we did, I spoke about two girls in San Luis Obispo, California that were abducted and murdered. I was at Cal Poly University at the time of these abductions, and one of the girls was a nutrition major like me at the university. It hit real close to home. Two years before these girls disappeared, another Cal Poly freshman named Kristen Smart disappeared walking back to her dorm from a party one night. At first, they thought these cases were linked, but after they found Andrea Crawford and Rachel Newhouse, the two girls that went missing when I was there, they found their killer, Rex Krebs, and he was in prison at the time of Kristen's disappearance. So 
they knew that they weren't linked abductions. I actually, you guys, have removed that first episode because when we started, our audio quality was so bad. I mean, real bad. There's a lot of people starting to come and listen to us, and they were going back to our beginning episodes and not really liking them. So Gretchen and I are working on reworking those recordings. Last week, a news story came out that read Kristen Smart's mother, Denise Smart, was told by the FBI that something was coming and she should be prepared and retain a team to assist with the media. Later, that story was debunked and said that an FBI official agent did not tell her that. So whatever is or isn't happening is questionable, but I will tell you, Kristen Smart has always been on my mind. What happened to her? There was a billboard on my way from Ventura to Cal Poly that I would pass so many times and wonder, where could she be? What in the world? When I was a freshman in college, it was said that she was buried right behind my dorm on the hill where a big letter P stood. And it was a rumor, right? 1998, 1999, I was at Cal Poly. No one really knew what happened to her. And back in 1999, when I was at Cal Poly, no one really knew. And no one actually even knew the story. All we knew was she was walking back to the dorm with some friends and was never seen again. Well, before I get into this interview, I want to give you a brief overview The podcast, Your Own Backyard, goes really deep into the whole story with interviews with her mother and friends, and I recommend listening to it. Chris, the host, is very sympathetic and really cares about finding Kristen. Kristen was a freshman at Cal Poly State University and close to the end of her freshman year, Memorial Weekend that Friday, she went out to a party. Her friends did not want to go to this party, so they just dropped her off and she went alone. I don't think that it's totally uncommon there at Cal Poly, or it wasn't at the time, even when I was there. People were on the streets, all around. Kids were everywhere. So she was bound to find somebody that she at least kind of knew at the party. And she did. Kristen saw a couple acquaintances, girl and a guy at the party that she kind of knew. One guy in particular, his name was Paul Flores. Paul was known for his inappropriate and impulsive behavior towards women. And he was often called Creepo Paul. Sounds like Chester the Molester to me, but they call them Creepo Paul. Kristen then gets real drunk at the party. Now, let me just insert here. Once I was at a party at Cal Poly and I was given a cup of jungle juice. You guys know that? It's like punch that they put alcohol in. And halfway through that punch or jungle juice, I blacked out. So I'm not sure what she drank or what she didn't drink, but we know that she was seen lying on the lawn of the next door neighbor in her bike shorts, running shoes, and crop top. At this time, It's cold, you know, it's warm in the day, cold at night, and an acquaintance comes out named Cheryl and another one named Tim. They see her lying there and they know she needs to get back to her dorm. So they kind of pick her up and start walking her back. Tim eventually leaves when he gets to his car and up runs Paul 
Creepo Paul, who insists that he will take Kristen back to her dorm without Cheryl. Cheryl's like, no way. I'm walking her back too. Like, hello, we're all going to the same place, buddy. Cheryl's dorm is the first one that they come to, and Paul insists he will get Kristen back safely and then asks Cheryl for a kiss, which she thinks is totally creepy and denies it. Then he says, okay, how about a hug? And she also declines. What a freaking perv. From there, we do not know what happens. Paul says he took Kristen to her dorm, but we know, in fact, she never made it. Paul has since not been very helpful, not helpful to the police. He's been real hostile. His parents have been hostile and unnervingly odd. The investigation has been completely botched. When Kristen was finally reported missing... Campus police were so nonchalant about the whole ordeal, insisting that she probably just left town. Even when her parents were like, she did not just leave town. She calls us every Sunday morning or every Sunday night. She did not call us. She did not leave town. She would not do this. They still thought maybe she just took off. So they allowed her dorm, Paul's dorm, to be completely moved out of after school year ended, cleaned up, everything gone before they even did any type of investigation. The work was so amateur and a disaster, leaving us 20-something years later with nothing. No Kristen and a killer on the loose. So here's my interview with Chris from your own backyard, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Tabitha from Housewives of True Crime. Thanks for taking this time to sit down with me. I wanted to just let our audience know about your podcast. I came to find it, I think, through somebody else, but it's gotten a lot of traction. So can you introduce your podcast and what you've been uncovering a little bit? Sure. So my podcast is called Your Own Backyard. It's a six-part series that focuses on the disappearance of Kristen Smart who was attending Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and disappeared in 1996. I was eight years old at the time, and I grew up in this area. And so it's something that our community talks about a lot, but there was never any resolution to it. And so I thought maybe by going over the story again and going into the details, telling the story on a large scale, that maybe people would start talking about it again. And have you found that they have started talking about it again, especially in your area? I have. Like, in fact, it got way bigger of a response than I expected. I've seen people in other countries that are listening. I've seen people in other states that are tweeting about it and tagging me and things. And so it went way beyond our community. But it's really big in our community right now to the point that I've gone to coffee shops and I'll be ordering and I'll hear people at a table just discussing details of one of my episodes and very strange. Oh, that's fun. I like that. So My very first episode, and to everybody listening right now, if you want to go back to episode number one, the audio quality is real horrible. I was just getting started on podcasting, so I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. But I had gone to Cal Poly 
when Rachel Newhouse was abducted. And I was a freshman at the time and I was a nutrition major. And so was she. And so it like, I mean, it was real scary. Right. And at that time you were, if you said you were eight and 96, so now you are 10, I think Yeah. at that point. Right. And I being 18 and the internet wasn't really, I mean, it was, it just started coming around. So you didn't really hear about cases or things that were happening. I mean, I knew because there were posters all over the school and it was real scary. And I remember the billboard, which is one of, in the first episode, you talked about this billboard of Kristen. And I mean, everybody correlated both of those together, right? Right. A girl goes missing in 96. Another girl goes missing in 98. They have to be, and this is a small town. So it has to be the same person. Well, come to find out it wasn't. And so I kind of mentioned Kristen's case. And I said to the listeners, I said, you know, I'll come back to this. Having no idea, flash forward five months that your podcast would come out and you took a crazy deep dive. I mean, (laughs) I kind of researched you a little bit before this podcast. And I saw that you had another podcast that had nothing to do with true crime. And you're not even really an investigative journalist, but you went down this, this rabbit hole that you sound pretty professional. Like, was this something (laughs) that you feel like is a calling now? No, not really. In fact, I just feel like I kind of stumbled my way through it. And any success was just pure luck. I have done journalism. I've written for a number of magazines in San Luis Obispo, but mostly about art and food and different people on the Central Coast, but never anything like this. And yeah, I did a podcast for three years called Are We Okay? And it was a discussion series where every week I would sit down with a different artist or creative person, and we would just have a free-form two-hour conversation about life. And at the end, try to kind of figure out, like, are we okay? Is everything going to be okay here? Are we going to make it? And I did that for three solid years. I wrapped it up this summer so that I could focus on your own backyard full time. So I had experience with recording podcasts, getting them online, producing, all that sort of stuff. My job for the last 10 years has been working in a recording studio, recording bands. I'm also a singer songwriter. Mm -hmm. So I had experience with recording and that side of things. And then I had experience with writing, but I had never combined the two and I had never looked into something like a crime before. And you picked Kristen because it was still outstanding. And that was something that interests you, I'm assuming. I mean, there's probably other crimes in Santa Maria or Royal Grande, San Luis Obispo that you could have looked into. But what about Kristen? drew you to her? A few different things. For one, it's probably the most high profile case on the Central Coast. They never resolved it. And so they're still not sure where she is buried or what happened to her body. But what interested me is that they did have a prime suspect since pretty much day one. So I started reading about it last summer and going, what happened here? It looks like they were right on the guy's trail from the very beginning. It looks like they knew who had done this. They knew some details about what had happened that night, and then it just got dropped. I know that he took the Fifth Amendment during a deposition. That seemed to sort of end things there, and I thought, if you could get away with murder that way, then every murderer in history would have done that. So how is this young college kid able to pull this off and get away with it for this long? How is he still walking free 23 years later? And what you uncovered was really that 
they did a real bad job of investigating. Yeah, pretty much everybody dropped the ball at a different point. The campus police took too long to declare her a missing person. And then even once she was a missing person, they still kind of treated her like a runaway. They were thinking she might have gone camping. She might have gone to Hawaii. So they didn't really start taking it seriously for about a month. By that time, all the evidence is able to be cleaned up. Everything is moved. Everything is hidden. And then when the sheriff's department took over, they kind of dropped a lot of balls, too. At one point, the sheriff of San Luis Obispo told a newspaper that unless the main suspect agrees to talk to us, we can never solve this case. And that was a huge blow to the prosecution side of things, because once he realized he didn't have to talk and they were powerless, he just chose not to. Oh, that's so frustrating. It is. So frustrating. And you really put yourself out there almost antagonizing a little bit the family of the accuser, would you say? Right? You're like, maybe like a little tick for them. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to walk that line. I tried. I never did approach them because I knew that they were very hostile Uh towards the media and even though I don't work for the media and I'm not involved with any of that, technically, I'm going to stick a microphone in their face. So I knew they wouldn't be happy. So I've left the family alone. But yeah, I went through the details and it's like, what happened here and why the things that I found out that they did, I just wrote them pretty bluntly. And so I didn't intend to attack them or antagonize them, but I tried to be as honest as I could. Yeah. And you were, and I I appreciate it. And I hope that I'm sure all of your listeners appreciate it as well. I mean, when I was listening to the father speak of Paul Flores, Paul Flores's dad speak, you just wanted to like shake him, you know, because you're like clearly lying. There's, and I don't know, it was real frustrating to me to listen to that part. And I want to tell you something else. When I was at Cal Poly, and I think your last episode that you dropped last week, you talked about her being buried under the P. Yes. That was your last one that you probably by this time this airs, your very last episode will air, correct? The very last episode aired this Monday. So the one before that was the burying of that she was buried under the P. And that was what everybody said when I was there. That was on the rumor mill. Yeah. And so I lived in the Yosemite dorms, which are a little bit you know, they're close to the red bricks where she was, but the furthest dorm away from campus, I guess, or at the time, I haven't been back in a very long time, but that's what the Yosemite dorm at the time was. And we would hike up to the P and it was always said that she was under, she was buried there. Who knows? Right. But that was only two years after it happened. So maybe some, I don't know, maybe. Have you found yourself getting any negative response from anybody, including Paul himself? I did get right after the first episode aired. Maybe it was the second. I think that second episode, there's somebody who I had mentioned their name completely separate from any crime. I didn't imply that they did anything wrong, but I received a message from their lawyer saying that they were going to pursue me for defamation and to call them. And so I did call them and I never got them on the phone. And then they never followed up with that. So it seemed kind of baseless to me. I didn't say anything, even implying that this person had done anything wrong. But I worried then from that point on, is this going to happen anytime I mention somebody and I'm going to have to tiptoe around 
people's names and details, but it hasn't happened again. That's good. And no, I haven't received any negative response from anybody else involved. Good. And so since you have concluded your podcast, I have a couple questions. One, what do you think happened? I mean, you really dove deep. You have hours and hours and hours of research in this. And I think probably you, above all, might have the clearest opinion on this. What do you think? Yeah, I will admit that the sheriff's detectives and investigators, FBI, they have a wealth of information about this case that I am not able to access. And so sometimes I feel a little foolish even asserting speculation because I know that they have all these files that they're probably laughing in my face thinking he doesn't know about this, he doesn't know about this. But I think what is pretty clear is that Paul Flores was the last person seen with her while she was alive. They split off from the girl that they were walking with up to that point and headed in the direction of the red brick dorms. It certainly doesn't seem like she ever made it back into her dorm building. And so I'm not sure if he took her to his dorm room or if he took her somewhere else. And I think at that point he tried to rape her. I think that he attempted to have sex with her and she was drunk. And whether she resisted or he got angry or tried to keep her quiet, I think that he ended up killing her accidentally. I think that he panicked and he called his dad and that his dad drove up to the campus. I think they put her in the back of their car and I think they found a good location to hide her body and tried to cover it up as quickly as possible and did a good enough job that within a few days there was no trace. They weren't able to find her body and even 23 years later she's still concealed somewhere. There's a lot of speculation that she's buried in the mom's backyard under concrete Mm -hmm. and there's evidence that points to her having been there at one point, but I don't know whether I believe that her body was ever there or was ever concealed there. I think that they had a lot of connections to rural locations that seem like a better place, in my opinion, to hide a body and get the attention off of yourself. Yeah, it is very rural out there. Yes. I mean, even if you were to hide her in the avocado orchard, like you said in one episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been in a lot of avocado orchards. I grew up in Ventura and my one of my friends lived in an avocado orchard. Her dad was a farmer and we'd play crazy hide and go seek out there. <laughs> like <laughs> you can't find anybody at any time. And so, and there's avocado trees drop lots of leaves. There's lots of coverage around there that I think it'd be pretty easy also to hide a body. After listening to your podcast, I kind of thought maybe they did hide her body at one point in the backyard. And then it's probably not there any longer. Yeah, they certainly had a lot of opportunity to move her. And a lot of people have opinions about how easy that would be. They think that it would have drawn too much attention. But I think there are easy ways to excavate somebody who is buried either in a soil planter box or even under concrete without drawing too much attention from the neighbors. It certainly seems from talking to the tenants who lived there not long after she disappeared like some of her belongings did end up at that house. They found a bloody earring yeah. in the backyard, which the sheriff's department collected and then lost and never booked into evidence, which is a real shame. And then there was a, a watch beeping in the middle of the night for the first several months that they lived there that eventually died. So it sounds like it was lost in the backyard not too long before they moved in. And they never uncovered that watch. They think it's underneath the concrete, correct? 
right? Or in one of the, so there are planter boxes that were cut down into the existing concrete, filled in with soil, and those have never been excavated to search for her body. They haven't. Didn't they bring dogs in when the tenants were living there? Yes, they brought in dogs in March of 1997. The dogs didn't do a full alert, but they did react to a corner of the yard where some garbage cans had been. And they had said that the Flores family was very, very insistent that they not use one of those metal garbage cans because they wanted to come pick it up, which they thought was a little suspicious. And not long after they collected the garbage can is when they found the bloody earring on their driveway. And so speculation that maybe the earring had been in that garbage can and fell out at one point. Gotcha. Yeah. So bizarre. So now, now what for you? Now what, now what do you do? Do you want to, you finished your podcast. Do you want to continue to see where this goes? Are you going to move on to something new? Are you in the works for another case? Is this like your next calling? I just wrapped up the last episode this week. And so it's so fresh that I still haven't quite planned the future, but even in the week since it's been out, I've done more interviews. I've talked to more people. I actually spent the week with Denise Smart, Kristen's mother, and just tried to focus on the positive stuff. We just hung out and had a good time together. And so I do plan to keep working on this case, but there is no plan to release new episodes at any point until I collect enough that it would be worth it to compile into a new episode, maybe bonus episodes down the line if I can collect enough material that's worth releasing. But people have asked about a season two or whether there's other cases that I'm looking into. And I'm just so completely immersed in this family and this story right now that I don't even have time to consider it. Like, I really do want some sort of resolution for the smart family. And whether I'm the person who can provide that or not, I don't know. But I do certainly think I've raised a lot of awareness on the Central Coast. I went into a lot more details than most people knew about before. And people are talking about it more than they have. And I'm getting a ton of emails from people who think they know things. I'm trying to follow up on all of those. And so hopefully it leads somewhere. I'm hoping for some sort of resolution. Yeah, that'd be really awesome. I guess that's probably your end goal, right? So to achieve the end goal, even though, I mean, you've done such a great job so far. I think that you have successfully achieved probably your first goal, but that could be your like second goal, right? Is to really see... Yeah, I'm hoping what I've achieved is to get the story out there on a large scale to the point where people who might have known something at the time or have learned something since might hear about it and come out to say that they know maybe where she's located. I know that on the sheriff's side of things, I think their main goal is to move forward with some kind of conviction to pursue maybe a no body case where they try to convict the suspect without having her body, but I'm really more concerned with where she's at and how she can be brought back to her family. Yeah, that would be nice closure for them for sure. I can't even imagine going on for so long and and not ever truly knowing. I mean, in their hearts, they know she's not around anymore, but but where is she, you know? Right. And that's something that has kind of kept me up at night for the last year or so is that the more that I get into the the nitty gritty and the real deep details of who was where at what point and who was living in what house is to kind of zoom out and just go, where is she? What is going on here? Because my belief is that she's buried somewhere on the central coast and therefore very near me. 
and I drive all the time from, I live in Orchid, just south of Santa Maria. And so when I drive up through San Luis Obispo, I pass Arroyo Grande and Pismo Beach. And I'm always wondering if she's in one of those locations and where, how close she is, how obvious it is where she's buried. And so that's the frustrating part of this is that it feels like she's near and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And I'm sure she is. I'm sure she is. It's just, you know, it's like a needle in a haystack. Right. There is a lot of open space in the Central Coast, a lot for people that don't know about Arroyo Grande or Pismo Beach, San Luis Obispo. They're really small towns and a lot of agriculture, right? I mean, yes. how many people live in Arroyo Grande where Paul Flores was from? I think it's only like 15,000. Yeah. I mean, really small. And Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, the college that she went to and that I attended, I think during the summer when the kids go home, or at least when I was there, like half the town left, you know, it was like the college was half of the entire town. Right. So that makes for a lot of, a lot of ground that people can dig up and bury. And a person isn't that big, you know, like, honestly, it's hard to, I think it would be really hard to find. I think she's going to be, it's somebody knows something. So And I'm sure that Paul has not kept his mouth shut. I'm sure it's got to be eating at him. And so, or allegedly, but let's just, I think he's probably, he probably knows a little bit more than he's leading on and, and him pleading the fifth. I mean, that interview also just like made me want to pull my hair out right? (laughs) because he wasn't concerned at all for her, for her parents. All he wanted to do was get away, you know, and if you're an innocent person that did nothing wrong, then you would try to be helpful. You would try to answer any question you could. Instead, he pleads the fifth at every question the entire way through. Like, how long was that interview? I think it's like 20 minutes. He pleads the fifth 27 times. It's like crazy. And the poor investigator has to keep asking him the questions, knowing that he's going to say, I plead the fifth. Yeah. And I think more perplexing for me is the way that the parents responded, because I sort of understand being a 19 year old kid and you made a mistake and you're trying to cover your trail now and you don't want to accept responsibility. But when you're in your 50s and this family is grieving and doesn't know where their daughter is and your son is the main suspect, you would think that you could at least have some empathy for the other family, even if you thought your son was completely innocent that you could find some common ground or maybe sit down and discuss the details with the other family. And they've been nothing but hostile and evasive. They refuse to answer questions. They insist that the Smart family is stalking them and harassing them. And they tried to sue them for emotional distress at one point. And so that's the confusing part to me is, why weren't these parents able to put themselves in this other family's shoes and go, if this was our kid, we could understand why they're as concerned as they are and upset and why they're pursuing us because they really do think our son knows something. Yeah. I think that to have my very biased opinion is that sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right. That's my conclusion. It's like why, why the parents are like that. The reason that he's like that, the morals are lacking clearly. Right. And even before Kristen went missing, it seems like Paul had little morals from what people around the campus had said about him, you know, like creepo Paul or whatever. 
yeah, he's very aggressive with girls and creeping them out, staring at them, but then to go further, groping them, trying to kiss them without their permission, even groping them in front of their boyfriends many times at parties and getting in fights because of it. He had a major drinking problem even from the time he was in high school. He's gotten several DUIs, and that's a question I've gotten a lot is, how can somebody get seven DUIs and not be in jail for this? And the answer is he has served jail time for this, and each time that he does that, it kind of wipes his record clean, and he gets to start fresh, and then he just gets more. So he's got a serious drinking problem, and I think at least some of that is to cover his guilty conscience. Yeah, you're probably right. Well, I really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I know that all my listeners are going to enjoy your podcast. I have also been seeing, I follow some Facebook groups, some Facebook like true crime groups, and your podcast has been coming up like all the time lately. So I know it's a fast growing and you're done. So now you just get to sit back and and see all the listeners come in, which is, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You got to feel really proud of your work. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to. It's it's been a challenge for me to just sit back and relax and feel good about it, partially because I'm still trying to figure out what happened to her and so I'm not done. I'm just not releasing at the moment. And on top of that, I just kind of am hard on myself. I try to try to do the best work that I can and I'm always a little critical of how it could have been better. And so there's parts of me that has a hard time. I kind of scroll past all the five-star reviews and just read the one stars and then think about them for the rest of my life. No, you should not do that. (laughs) I shouldn't. You know, you shouldn't. I don't do that. I only read the five-star reviews, Chris. And then (laughs) your life is much more pleasurable. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been getting a lot of reviews and you're at a five-star. So I think you're pretty good. I don't think I saw, and I did kind of read over some of your reviews. I don't think I saw hardly any bad ones. I saw a four-star and I was like, really? It's not a four star. It's a five star. It really is. I mean, and I'm real critical on podcasts. I've listened to a ton of them because before I started a podcast, I was a huge podcast listener for years and I had no idea how to record or what to do. And so that's why my first ones were not so good. 